0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're continuing in chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with the call of the 12 apostles, a divine choice. That's significant because these were the men that would lead a world-changing spiritual revival after the resurrection, and they would not be the men we would choose to do so. Chapter 10 also reveals a divine commission. Once chosen, the disciples were given a definite commission, specific instructions as to their message and methodology. And while not identical, we have much to learn about our own commission from what we read in Matthew 10. My name is Brian Schmidt and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But For now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: We studied some of the disciples who became apostles. Let's continue with that list by looking at the life of Matthew, the next one on the list. He identifies himself by his old profession to remind his readers of God's grace with him from a life of dishonesty. Now he mentioned his conversion already in chapter 9, but Luke points out that Matthew left everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. And that is a great lesson and a great example for us already. Many Christians don't mind following Jesus as long as they have a second option. They have a plan B. You know what? Matthew didn't have a plan B. As a tax collector, he left everything behind. He left his booth of tax collecting behind as well as his wealth and security. I have met many believers like that who welcome God's process of winning them from the world, they don't wait to see if God gives them a less demanding opportunity. They simply obey immediately. Unlike that man that we studied from chapter 8, who asked Jesus if he could wait until his father died before he would follow Jesus. In other words, he was asking Jesus, let me save up some money. Let me wait for the right opportunity to follow. Guess what, church? The right opportunity to follow Christ is now. If he calls you right now, you answer that call right now. Don't wait. Just follow him like Matthew did. And that's the lesson we learned from him. Now, the next name on the list, James, the son of Alphaeus. Not to be confused with the other James, the son of Zebedee. This is not the brother of Jesus who wrote the New Testament book by the name James. Most likely, this guy had another famous brother, and I want to show that to you. Mark hints at that, according to Mark 2, verse 14. As he, meaning Christ, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the text office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So, James is most likely the brother of Matthew, Levi, the text collector. And that's all we have about this guy in the New Testament. Thaddeus, the next man on the list, also known as Judas son of James, according to the directory of Luke 6, verse 16. He doesn't get a lot of attention from the New Testament writers here, other than just one line. And that one line is in John 14, verse 22, when he says this, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So that's it. That's all we have from him. Not a lot of information. Some people believe that this is the man who authored the book of Jude, I don't think so because we need more information than just the same name. Jude is the same name as Judas or Judah. So we'll need more information to come to that conclusion. But let me move on and talk to you about Simon the Zealot, also known as the Canaanite or the Canaanian. That is the political terrorist we were talking about last week. The Scripture gives him the epithet, the Zealot, because of a possible affiliation prior to coming to Christ with the Jewish nationalist group. So he probably expected a political messiah who would overthrow Rome. But again, the New Testament writers don't say anything more about him. But let's talk about the infamous man on this list. The last one in every directory of apostles in the Bible, for obvious reasons. Judas Iscariot. Let me give you some information on him. Iscariot is not his last name. It's just an indication of where he was from. So you can translate his name as Judah, the man from Kerioth. That's what that means. He's also known as the son of Simon Iscariot. That is in John 13, verse 26. Now, One interesting fact about Judas, he was in charge of the money. How do we know that? John chapter 12 verse 6 says that not only was he in charge of the money box, but he would steal from the money box. And obviously, church, Christ knew about the fact that Judas was a thief. He knew that beforehand. And yet he chose him to be one of his disciples. So the question for all of us is this. Why in the world would Jesus choose a man who he knew would betray him and also he knew was a thief in order to be a part of the disciple group here. The answer is twofold. First of all, the same reason he chooses you and me. We are sinners just like Judas. We're not traitors perhaps, but we are sinners in need of God's grace and he gives us the opportunity to change our ways just like he gave Judas for three years an opportunity to change his way. But second of all, he chose Judas so that prophecy would be fulfilled. Listen to Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That is a messianic prophecy about the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And John 13, verse 18, clarifies that that prophecy was fulfilled. Even the amount of money used for the betrayal was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let me read something to you from the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. And I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. Never mind. So they weighted out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And we know what happened later on in the life of Christ, that that was the price that was paid for the betrayal of Jesus Christ. But knowing that Judas Iscariot was a traitor, the man who betrayed Jesus Christ, causes us to ask another question. And that is a more important question in terms of applications for all of us. And that is this. How did Jesus treat his traitor? the man who would betray him. and Because that is very important for us if we are to be imitators of Christ. If we're looking to honor God by the way we live and reject any human philosophy in dealing with conflict and dealing with one another, we need to imitate Christ. So the question is, how did Jesus treat his traitor? Now, none of the gospel writers mention any animosity that Christ had towards Judas. Now, of course, there were the three disciples who were part of the inner circle. We talked about them last time. But uh, he didn't mistreat Judas. He gave him every opportunity to repent. He gave him every opportunity to change his way. In fact, let me show you an act of kindness that Jesus gave to Judas. And that is in John 13, verses 21 through 27. When Jesus has said these things, and by the way, this is the Last Supper, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He then simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That man is the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took it and gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. After this, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do it quickly. So church, what this is, is an act of kindness that Jesus demonstrated to the men who would betray him. This is a custom of the day that hosts would give to honored guests. He never excluded him. He never treated him as an outsider. Now, why is this important? Every one of us has experienced betrayal. If you haven't yet, let me read something to you from Matthew 10 verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. What that means is this, church, you will be betrayed because you are not greater than your master Jesus Christ. If Christ was betrayed, you will be betrayed too. So eventually, my friends, a business partner, perhaps a close friend, a family member, a church member, a child, will break your heart and will break your trust. They may slander you. They may assassinate your character either online or behind your back or through gossip. That happens all the time. And they may even plot against you. They may even plot to pull the rug from under you. And my friend, if you're in ministry, you want to double that possibility. The reality of betrayal should not surprise us because we live in a fallen world and even Christians from time to time will resort to the flesh and they will default to their pre-Christian ways of doing relationships and they will gossip, they will assassinate your character, they will treat you in a manner that is not consistent with the Christian way. You will be betrayed. But thank God for the example of Christ whom we must imitate so, the question is again, a more important question for us from the life of Judas is this How should we treat our traitor, the one who will betray us, or the one, the people who have betrayed us? I'm glad you asked because the Bible says a lot about that. First of all, You must never seek revenge or duplicate the treachery. Because again, if you duplicate the treachery, you're just perpetuating the cycle, the evil cycle. And by the way, Paul says in Romans 12 verse 19, he reminds us that the Lord says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So what must we do then, church, when faced with betrayal? When you are confronted with the person who has broken your trust, forgive your offender. 70 times 7 if needed. That's in John 18, verse 22. And let God vindicate you and your character. The longer you withhold forgiveness, the greater the opportunity for you to default to your flesh, to your carnal ways, and therefore create a disaster. So what do we do? Again, do not slender your betrayer or murder him with your, in your heart. The, in fact, the Bible says this in 1 John 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. So don't murder your traitor in your heart. Forgive him or her. Don't slander him or her. Instead, speak kindly of him or her. Protect his reputation. In fact, go a step further and seek reconciliation. Let me remind you again of the words of Paul from Romans 12. This one is in verse 22. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But you say, Pastor, you don't understand. My traitor considers me an enemy now. Well, good. Because the Bible says something about this in Proverbs twenty five twenty one. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So take the high road. Pursue reconciliation. Meet the needs of your offender, of your betrayer, and therefore imitate Christ. So that concludes then the lesson on the disciples, the men of the divine choice there that we talked about. We looked at the matter, the mode, and the men of the divine choice. But now I want you to see from verses 5 through 15, the definite commission. So we looked at the divine choice. Now we're going to look at the definite commission, verses 5 through 15. And I want you to follow along with me. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats, or sandals, or a staff, for the workers worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay in his house until you leave the city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." A lot of information here for us, a lot of meat here for our souls when we're talking about the definite commission of Christ to the first generation of messengers, the first generation of disciples. And that commission, if you notice here with me, has three aspects. Just like the divine choice had three aspects, this one has three aspects that I want to point out to you. The target, the task, and the terms. Let's talk about all of these three. The target, first of all, verses 5 through 6. Listen, Jesus gave him a definite command, a clear objective. And that objective is this, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And remember, make a mental note that Jesus Christ in the prior chapter there, Matthew tells us that his heart was broken for the lost sheep. Why? Because the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the scribes, the self-proclaimed pastors of those sheep, we're not doing their job. So they failed in their pastoral duties. And Matthew then wants to show his readers how much the Jewish Messiah and the true shepherd cares for them. And that is why he dispatches them to the lost sheep of Israel. And that is the target. Jesus says very clearly, you go to the Jews first to call his people to the kingdom of heaven before anyone else. So the Jews of Jesus' time had priority in hearing the message of the kingdom. Now, both Matthew and John explain this Jewish priority in kingdom proclamation. This is what the former tax collector quotes concerning the angelic announcement in Christmas time. We read this verse every Christmas. Matthew 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Talking about the Jews. His people Now, Paul clarifies the Jewish priority here in the order of that when he writes in Romans 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And John, the disciple of love, writes this in John 1, verse 11, that he came to his own, meaning he came to the Jews, and his own people did not accept him. So Jesus Christ came to proclaim the kingdom of heaven to the Jew first. The problem is, for people, not for God, the problem is that they rejected him on a national scale. Now, the priority to the Jews does not mean that Gentiles belong in God's plan B. There is no such thing. Matthew has already identified some non-Jews that got saved, for example, the Roman centurion. And furthermore, Luke Tells the story of a man by the name of Simeon. He was a Jew. He took the baby Jesus in his arms and praised God like this. Luke 2 verses 29 through 32. Now Lord, you are letting your bond servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light for revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, so even though there is the priority for the Jews to receive the gospel when Jesus came and dispatched the disciples, God has always had a plan for Gentile people, for non-Jews. So even though Christ focused his ministry there in that first dispatch of the disciples, we must know that towards the end of the gospel of Matthew, he sends the disciples out into all the nations. Why is that, church? John explains this by quoting Jesus. And Jesus says this in John 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You see, in Christ, church, there is no Jew and Greek. In Christ, we're all one because we are all under the uh, curse of sin, but when we come to Jesus Christ, we are redeemed, and therefore we are considered born again, subjects of the kingdom of heaven, and we are one in Christ, even though we retain our cultural distinctives, we retain the language we speak, we retain our personalities, of course, but we are one in Christ, those of us who have responded to the message of salvation by grace through faith. So that's the first aspect of the definite commission there, the target. They had a clear target. You and I have a clear target. Our clear target is anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ. But here's the second aspect of the definite commission, the task. In verses 7 through 13, not only does Jesus tell them exactly where to go, he tells them now exactly what to preach. And that is very interesting, church, because, see, the disciples were not authorized to add to the message or to water down the message or to modify the message in any way so that the message would be better accepted. And he says this, you are to tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Any other content that would modify the message would have constituted their election of duty of the worst kind. And likewise, church, we are under the same command. We are not authorized to change the message of the gospel so that people will accept us. Now, we don't like rejection. We are terrified of rejection, so the temptation for us is obviously to modify the message or to tell people a less demanding gospel and tell them, listen, Jesus wants you to be happy and wealthy. That is not the case. He may give you wealth and health after you come to Jesus Christ, but the point is many people who come to Christ don't experience that. Most people actually experience the opposite, opposition and difficulty and hardship. So we're not authorized to change the message or to water it down just to to suit the taste of sinners, to fill a place, to fill the church. I can't think of anything more unfaithful than that. And by the way, Paul is very clear about the message that we preach as modern-day messengers of the kingdom of heaven. Paul says that the message we preach is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. So church... We don't compromise. And again, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a messenger of the kingdom of heaven, whether you want it or not, whether you're doing what you're supposed to do or not, whether you're faithful to the call or not, God has called you, my friend, to make disciples of every nation if you are a believer in Christ. Now, you are not responsible for reaching every nation. We collectively as a church, not locally, collectively, universally, we are responsible for sending people around the world so that the nations can hear about Christ. And we do it here at Grace Baptist Church. I'm proud of our missions team. So Jesus tells them not only exactly what to tell others, but exactly how to proceed. The apostles would have encountered people willing to hire them as personal healers and personal miracle workers. But they had to avoid the corruption of serving God for money. Think about the relevance of this command to both Matthew and Judas. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector who used to steal. And Judas was a follower of Christ who used to steal from the money box. So imagine the relevance for these two men that Jesus says, Don't acquire any money. Let God take care of you and he will. Now, this doesn't mean the church should stop paying pastors. Paul instructs Timothy like this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, here's another question for you to consider, talking about this whole thing of the disciples being sent and not charging for their ministry. Who should finance the ministry of kingdom proclamation of our day? What do you think? Let me give you a hint unbelievers will never pay to be reached for christ so the job of financing kingdom ministry church is yours and mine we send people out into the mission field we invest in kingdom proclamation so that people can hear the gospel and that is why jesus tells them don't acquire any gold don't acquire any copper don't acquire possession but you just trust the lord because the lord is going to place in people's hearts to receive you at their homes so that is the second aspect of the definite commission. But look at the third aspect of the definite commission here. We'll finish here. The terms, verses 14 through 15. They were not to insist when people rejected the message. See, that is very important because I used to think that my job was to close the deal right then and there. But that's not the case. Jesus says, don't insist when you encounter rejection. In fact, That is a feature of soul-harvesting ministry. You will encounter more rejection than acceptance. Now, in verse 14 here, Jesus refers to a common practice among the Jews to not bring Gentile dirt into the house. That's what they used to do. They would shake the dust off their feet, and the message that they were communicating to the family is this. Gentile dirt will not come into this house. Now, Jesus is telling the disciples, flip that. If the Jews to whom I'm sending you reject you, you shake the dust off your feet, meaning you treat them as they would treat a Gentile because they're as lost as Gentile because they reject the message of Jesus Christ. And that is what he's saying here. Now, the worthiness of the house, in case you got a little confused about that, has to do with the willingness to receive the messenger of the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with money has nothing to do with a vip status but with the willingness of someone to receive a messenger of the kingdom of heaven the nobility of the cause that is what jesus is talking about now verse 15 truly i say to you he says it will be more tolerable for the land of sodom and gomorrah in the day of judgment what he means is this church ultimately rejecting christ is worse than the sin of homosexuality in terms of judgment Why is that? Because the homosexual can be forgiven. The homosexual will be restored if he or she comes to Christ. The person who permanently and ultimately rejects Christ and refuses to turn to Him, declines the offer of salvation, he or she will spend eternity in hell to be tormented forever. So, do we understand the urgency of communicating to people the need for them to come to Jesus Christ? Now, Here's another observation about this. The statement from Jesus concerning leniency for Sodom and Gomorrah shocked Matthew's original readers. And I'll tell you why. Because many of the Jews of that day did not consider themselves sinners in need of salvation. They're saying, What are you talking about? Those are sinners. We are not sinners. So that is why the disciples would have encountered opposition, because they would be confronting the sinfulness of people who don't think they're sinners. They don't think they need salvation. They think they're okay with God because of their works-based religion. They are deceived. Now, finally, I want you to see here in a discourse that features compassion, Jesus affirms that there will be a day of judgment. You see the balance there? He's talking about compassion. He's demonstrating compassion. Matthew tells us that Jesus Christ felt compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. And now he records the words of Jesus saying there will be a judgment. Yes, he heals the sick. He raises the dead and he sends apostles to do the same. But he highlights divine compassion because he offers to withhold judgment see that's the great aspect of compassion offering to withhold judgment from people who deserve judgment is the greatest act of compassion someone can ever do and that's what jesus offers for you my friend and for me we are sinners in need of salvation. Those of us who receive the message of salvation, we are redeemed sinners. And it is my great joy to announce that compassion to the whole world. My friend, today you can be saved by God. You can be saved for God. And most importantly, you saved from God, from the wrath of God. Because Christ says it very clearly, during a commission of the disciples to go and communicate the compassion of God, there will be a day of judgment. And you don't want to be there. So, Let's not forget that. If you don't remember anything we talked about today, remember this. We're being saved from God, by God, and to God. That's how we conclude the two-part lesson that we started last week on the messengers of the kingdom of heaven. We take great comfort in knowing that Jesus calls ordinary, unqualified people for extraordinary service. So if you are, like the rest of us, unqualified to serve the King of Kings, welcome to the club of unqualified people who rely on God's enabling grace to serve Him with excellence.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth with Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.